In the Bhagavad Gita, we are studying chapter 4 and uh, we had seen how Krishna declared himself to be an avatara, this incarnation of God, and then said that in the 10th verse, um, 9th verse and 10th verse, Janma karma jame divyam evam yo tattvata the one who recognizes that I am an avatara. Um, so Arjuna knew Krishna as a friend uh, and knew him as, as a person, as a human being, but did not actually recognize that he was none other than God incarnated. So one who recognizes the avatara as God incarnated and realizes that um, the birth and the actions of an avatara are divyam, divine, not like uh, not like us. Um, they will escape from, they'll be freed from this prison of the cycle of birth and death. So life and death, this ever-repeating cycle, one will be freed from it and will not come back to the samsara. A mameti attains me, attains, attains to God, which is the idea of moksha, liberation. That's one, that's the general interpretation. The deeper Advaitic interpretation of this would be the word Tattvataha, in reality. Who knows me in reality? What does that mean? Not only as Avatara, who realizes that, um, that you are none other than this witness consciousness, um, pure being, pure isness, and so is God. The nature of God and your nature are one and the same thing, and by that knowledge you are liberated. So the first interpretation would be you recognize Krishna as God and worship and surrender to God through the avatar, through the incarnation. Um, and that's a very powerful way to enlightenment, uh, to, to liberation, to salvation. The standard way would be by your own effort, by prayer to God and by meditation and good works and all of that. Um, ultimately, one is liberated, of course, there also by the grace of God. But here you have an incarnation. In human form, the contact is much more intimate and we catch hold of the incarnation and the, one of the purposes of incarnation is to grant liberation, is to grant enlightenment. Uh, so that would be one way, by the power and the grace of the incarnation. In fact, the whole of Christianity is actually based on that concept, the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. So this is what Krishna is talking about. Not just Jesus Christ, every incarnation of God has that power to free us from this burden of, of our karma, our past karma. That is basically, um, you know, freeing us from, in, in Christian terms, the, uh, the burden of our past sins. So our past karma, we are freed from that, we attain to enlightenment and therefore moksha. That's one interpretation. But the deeper interpretation in, in Advaita Vedanta would be, you realize, with, by the grace of the avatara, that you and the avatar are the same reality that exist consci existence consciousness place satchidananda the absolute and by that realization you immediately realize that you are free you always were free you are free you are choicelessly free and that that also gives moksha that realization gives moksha so i gave two interpretations a, a dualistic theistic devotional and the other one is a knowledge-based non-dualistic then one may, might ask, so if that's so, 
then why don't you give this realization to everybody? You are an incarnation, you have come to give liberation to people, so why don't you give it to everybody? So the 11th verse is this, where we, we were last time. The 11th verse goes, Ye yathamam prapadyante tangstatheva bhajamyaham mamavatmanuvatante manushyaparthasarvasha by whatsoever way men worship me, even so do I accept them. For in all ways, O Partha, men walk in my path. So if you keep this question in mind, why doesn't God give liberation to everybody? That's the ultimate goal of life. And then the whole thing would be over. No, it is our choice. The Lord grants us whatever we want. So whatsoever way men worship me, not just you know, as incarnation or my own self and in the way of uh, jnana yoga, the path of knowledge, but also for worldly goals. People worship God for protection, you know, from coronavirus or something, or for, um, uh, or for gaining things in the world, more wealth or success or, um, you know, learning, whatever it is. So most men, most human beings, they do not want liberation. It's not that people are, are here, uh, are coming to God for liberation. Very few. It is only the highly spiritual, um, the 65 people gathered here, more or less these people, who, are, who, who want this peculiar thing. They, don't, they are not particularly interested in being rich or famous or, uh, or even being rescued from trouble. All those are good, but we want something much bigger. We want the ultimate prize, the highest goal, that is liberation, moksha. But there, most others do not come to God. They have faith in God, but not for the highest goal, not for enlightenment, not for salvation or moksha. Uh, it is usually for lesser goals, worldly goals. Um, you know, most people who come to God, who go to temples, you know, it, it is that God will help us. Help us for what? Not for high spiritual goals, but for this life. I say this again and again, you know, there is two kinds of uh, religion. The lower religion and the higher religion. The lower religion is God for my life, as a convenience for my life, you know. A washing machine makes my life better, a car makes my life better, God makes my life better. So, for all my troubles in life, I take it to God and I, I want to be helped along. It's a physical even financial, emotional, a crutch, something to lean upon, uh, psychological, something to lean upon. And one, it's, one should not dismiss this. It's a huge thing. Most people, they, they need this in life. And uh, without this, people suffer in life, just in worldly life. I'm not even talking about spirituality or enlightenment. Carl Jung, he said that in most adults who ha have psychological problems in his patients, he has seen that in most cases it is because of a divorce between them and their church. Church means by the, in their, their religion. So they have been divorced from religion. And that is at the root of their psychological distress. Who's saying this? Carl Jung. And that is for, as a support for living life. Life is full of suffering and tragedy. And you need this support. Nothing wrong with it at all. But there is this higher form of religion where not God for my life, my life for God. That higher form of religion one can call spirituality. 
That's what we are all here for. We would be very happy if God helps us out with our day-to-day problems. Good. But that's not really what we are here for. We are here for liberation, uh, moksha, salvation, whatever you call it. So Krishna says, most people are not like that. That's why I don't give them liberation. Most people want dharma thagama. They want um, pleasure. They want success. And they want maybe a heavenly life after death. That's it. So this worldly pleasure and success and other worldly pleasure and success. But that's all of that is worldly. This world or that world, it's still worldly. And those few who want liberation, I give them liberation. So that's the answer to the question. And he qualifies this by saying, in verse number 12, Kaṅśanta karmanam siddhim yajanta iha devata Shipram hi manushe loke siddhi bhavati karmaja. People seeking the fruit of actions worship the gods in this world. For in this world of men, the fruit of action comes quickly. Um, what might be the occasion for this verse is that people worship not only God, but in many religions, especially in ancient times, they worship the gods with smaller g the small g, the different powers of, of nature, you know. So somebody might say, but I'm not worshipping you in any case, Krishna. I'm not worshipping you, Krishna, in any case. Uh, I am, Shankaracharya says, Ig, uh, Indra Chandra Adi, Indra Chandra Agni Adi, uh, the, the gods like Indra and Chandra and, you know, the, the moon god or uh, fire god or the king of the gods, Indra, Vedic gods. So we are worshipping other powers. In any case, we are not worshipping you. So this question doesn't arise of you giving us liberation or not giving us liberation. Krishna says, no, all of the gods whom you worship, whatever you worship, they all derive their power from me in the end. And people do worship these other powers because they are not interested in higher spirituality. What's the difference between these lesser gods and capital G God? Capital G God can give everything, including and especially moksha, liberation. Spiritual freedom. The smaller g gods in the plural, they give lower things. Uh, worldly success. You want to defeat, you want to conquer a kingdom, you want to make rain happen, things like that. So you pray to these gods. But you need not. Because Krishna says, they all derive their power from me. Uh, only thing is, these rituals, which fulfill worldly desires and other worldly desires, they give results quickly. In this world, in this world of human beings, the rituals give results quickly and they, people want immediate gratification and those are usually worldly goals. That's why they worship these other gods. They are not really interested in enlightenment and freedom. One of our swamis, an acharya in our training center when we were novices, he would say humorously, don't think that everybody is out to get enlightenment. If God comes and says, I'm going to give you moksha right now, there will be many who will back off. Not right, not right away. Yes, certainly. I want that, but not just yet. Just a little later. I've got some other things to enjoy in this world. And he gave uh, his example of a very gentle, elderly uh, man, very devoted. By seeing his devotion, this Swami, he said, I felt so pleased. Um, and I said, uh, oh, uh, sir, in Bengali, I said, sir, um, you are so devoted. 
Surely Sri Ramakrishna will grant you liberation in this very life itself. And that man became scared. Swami, don't say this. Swami is saying, a monkey is saying, maybe it will be fulfilled. No, 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 don't say that, Swami. I have a daughter. Who is going to bring her up if I get liberated? So, <laughs> no chance of that happening very quickly. But you see, where we are anchored. Um, so I have to bring up my daughter and therefore I don't want liberation. He was scared. Maybe the Swami is saying it and right now God is going to appear before me. There, liberation, done. <laughs> no. So... Shipram hi manushe loke, in this world of human beings, siddhir bhavati karmaja, the, the results of actions, actions here means ritualistic actions, uh, they give quick results. Um, and therefore people worship the, all these other gods. Um, a couple of points here. One is, three points here. One is that the... Um, the tendency I have seen in many Hindu households, especially devout Hindu households, to keep collecting deities. Because in Hinduism we have no end of these smaller G gods. Or the capital G god also in different forms. God, that's one god, but you know, whether it is um, um, Vishnu or Shiva or uh, Ganapati, Ganesha, or Kartikeya, or the Devi, now it's, it's the worship of the Devi. They all actually are not different. They are not countably different. They all mean, from a Vedantic perspective, they all mean God, one God, capital G. Different names and forms. Different names, forms, mantras, mythologies, rituals, um, you know, Puranic stories. Each of them could be the center of a new religion, actually. They are all sort of comprehended within the vast range of Hinduism. But they all mean that from a Vedantic perspective, Saguna Brahman, Ishwara, the god of religion, all of these, capital G. And they are not plural. Uh, there was this joke about one of the, you know, the, the Englishmen coming early, before India was, was ruled by the British, and a clergyman trying to convert the Hindus into Christianity. And he says, you all must worship God. And the Hindu says to him, yes, but what's the name of God? What do you mean name of God? God is God. Yes, but what name? What is the name of your God? So, uh, this, the same God is uh, worshipped in different forms, with form, without form, in male form, in female form, in uh, the form of the elements like space and fire, and, um, or without any form also, with many, many names. They are all the same G. Now, my point is, the Hindu households collect so many of these. And then tension and anxiety. If somebody is giving a, this picture, I go to a pilgrimage and there are these pictures of the, the deity there are being sold. So I get one and put it in my house. Then somebody else presents me with a little uh, um, idol or, or an icon. I put it in my shrine. And now we have this whole, uh, like a, you know, like, like a museum of, uh, <laughs> of divinities. And then anxiety. If I don't keep it there, will, will that particular deity be annoyed with me? It's the same deity. Why would that particular deity be annoyed with me? But anxiety builds up. And after all, it's God, you know. Maybe God is annoyed with me. And every little problem, oh, because I did not offer worship to God in that form. And then um, it's kind of divine stress. Stress caused by divinity. And I've see, actually seen that happen. Never do that. Never be afraid. 
God is there to help you, both in a worldly sense and in a spiritual sense. The best practice is to keep um, image or picture of your um, Ishta Devata, chosen deity, whether it's um, whether it is Shiva or Vishnu or whatever it is, a Devi, or an avatar like Ram or Krishna or whatever it is. Keep that, and if you want more, keep it all around. You worship that one and mentally bow down or physically bow down to all of them. That's it. That's it. You need not worry about it at all. I have seen uh, Hindu households extending their puja morning and evening, becoming, you know, like filling up the whole day and not getting peace out of it. That's not a way to worship God. Never be afraid. God is not there to punish you. That's one problem. The second point I want to make is that... Um, when you say these gods, people worship the smaller gods and not God with a capital G, it may not seem particularly relevant in our time. There was smaller G gods have more or less disappeared from our sight and even God with capital G we put under the big question mark. So where is the question of worshipping Indra, Chandra and Agni and all? Here you can interpret it in, in the other, in a much more sordid sense of the materialistic gods we worship. When Krishna is saying, people worship gods here in this world. Here in this world actually also could mean money, work, fame, you know, wealth and success and fame and power and pleasure. These are the gods people actually worship. They are all the small g's. And uh, they give their results immediately. But the end is always misery. So uh, that's one interpretation you could give. And the third point I wanted to make was this distinction between life here in the world, God for my life, and my life for God. I made this distinction in a class at Harvard Divinity School. It was in Professor Stephanie Paulsell's class on Christian Contemplative Prayer, a very wonderful class. And you'd be happy to see how many young men, men and women are interested you know, in something like prayer and contemplation. The class was always full. And there are people sitting on windowsills, on, on the benches, you know, like uh, desks. Um, or like Indian ashrams, on the, on the carpet, on the floor. <laughs> so when I made this distinction, that um, notice... Yes. Notice that the, the ones we are reading, the, the um, books that we are reading... For the course, I have a message here which says Robert has entered the waiting room for this meeting. Okay. So, when I made this distinction, that notice the books we have been reading, um, the, the early Christian contemplatives, down to the medieval saints like... Uh, Saint Teresa or the anonymous author of the um, Dark Knight of the Soul and so on and so forth. All of these belong to the second category of spiritual people, those who have given their lives for God. All these books we are studying, they belong to that higher spirituality. Not God for life, but life for God. All saints, whether they are actually monastic or in household life, they are like that. Now, it, 
I, I generally saw the uneasiness when there this, this distinction made among the, in, in the professor and the grad students there. And uh, see the whole idea of everything here for God, for enlightenment, it's very transcendent. It's sort of very beyond this life. And the whole fashion of our age is to, everything is here. This world, this life, even God, spirituality, religion, it's good insofar as it enriches our life here. And that's it. Um, that is the dominant trend of our... It's, it's a miserable trend. And, and it's also the source of our miseries. But people feel uneasy if you say that all this is for some um, higher spiritual transcendent purpose. It's as if you're going back to the medieval ages or the dark ages where the church ruled everything and everything was for heaven and this life did not matter. That, that's the thing in the, in the minds of people. So I realized that uh, just by looking at the expressions. Nobody protested. So I, I ended that uh, comment by saying that ultimately the two are not separate. Once you have your life given to God, God is the center of your life, this life itself becomes blessed. So you become a blessing to yourself and those around you and that's an enormous source of peace and joy and uh, goodness for society. And then I saw smiles coming back to the faces of the professor and, and the grad students. So these are the points I wanted to make. All right. Now, important verse, number 13. Not particularly important from the spiritual point of view or even the philosophical point of view, but much more from the... Um, much more from our present context, the social point of view. This deals with the caste system, which is a very, very controversial subject. And this, this verse itself has been the target of many activists. The Gita says that it supports the caste system. Let's take a look at it. What is the caste system and uh, why the charges are not right? Thirteenth verse. Chaturvanyam maya srishtam guna karma vibhagasha tasya kartaram api maam vidya kartaram abhyayam the four castes were created by me according to differences in attitudes and actions of men through the though the author of them know me the immutable as non-agent first of all we'll take the second part of the verse tasya kartaram api maam vidya kartaram abhyayam Remember, what is this whole thing discussion from second chapter onwards? Arjuna's question was, what do I do with this terrible action in front of me? Uh, this duty I have, this war. And Krishna's answer is teaching him about Vedanta, that the self is existence consciousness place. You realize that and you're free of suffering. Uh, and yet you have to do your duty in this world. Because if you just say you have to realize that and become enlightened, Arjuna would be very happy. He would say, that's exactly what I want to do. I don't want to fight this war. I want to be a monk and stay in the, in the Himalayas. He actually uses the word in his, uh, in his introduction to the problem. Arjuna uses the word bhikshacharyam, which means a life, a mendicant life, life sustained by begging. So it's a holy, wondrous life. I want to do that. I don't want to do this. So Krishna immediately follows it up with the teachings of karma yoga. So first jnana yoga and then karma yoga. What is karma yoga? You have to realize God, that is the goal of your life. But what is in front of you now, the battle that is in front of you, that you have to do. Your karma has to be, which was karma earlier, has to be spiritualized now. 
the actions of our daily life still have to be performed no matter even if you are a spiritual seeker we still have to be performed but now it's performed with a new spirit so even if you become a monk just by the way if you become a monk you don't get to get scot free from all action first of all you can't even if you are a, a solitary ascetic in the mountains you still have to take care of your own body and you have to fee- fill your belly so you have to at least go out for uh, begging and taking a bath in the freezing cold ganga uh, and it doesn't end there uh, work comes your way i just sort of smiling when i heard you know there was a commotion when i was there in the Him- himalayas a sudden commotion why among the monks who lived in huts and caves the commotion was there were government of officials with laptops coming and asking for papers do you have swami do you have papers for this uh, this hut uh, luckily i was passing through they asked me to so i was not staying there i said no i don't stay here my ashram is in near calcutta in belurmat so they said okay that's it but the other monks who stayed there uh, and just imagine you stay in a cave how do you have papers for the cave so <laughs> so Uh, but it's it's the bureaucracy they don't make allowances they have to know that they're standardizing everything and it's good it's everything is being bought under this but no government ever planned for monks living in caves so see how the world reaches out to you even if you are sitting uh, in meditation in a cave in the himalayas a monk just wanders in and sees a cave is free who knows who stayed there earlier it could be another monk it could be a bear or some there are actually some of the caves you have to be careful there are monks in some and there are bears in others So you have to be careful which one you visit um so how do you get papers for a cave uh so nobody escapes work and if you join an ashram as i did uh the first thing that is done is there are lots of there's lots of work in the ashram and as the novices we had to do most of the work so there was uh, they used to keep us busy i remember whenever we grumbled and we we did grumble that oh there's so much work i hardly get time for meditation it's done on purpose we think we will become a monk and then we will meditate and meditate and then become enlightened in a week two weeks i'll give it six months that never that's never going to happen that's just uh, immaturity so it's a blessing that the senior monks fill our days with um, good activity service activity schools colleges hospitals so when we would grumble to senior swami swami we don't have time for meditation or we are tired in the time of meditation there isn't enough time for this or energy and the answer would be oh good oh good that's all <laughs> it it's all, all it, it's all on track that's what it is supposed to be so whether you are at home in the office or even in the ashram the world will make you work how do you do that work how do you spiritualize work that was the topic of the third chapter here also how do you spiritualize work a deeper secret will be re- revealed from an advaitic perspective how do you spiritualize work what was told in the third chapter third chapter that you do your work unselfishly without worldly goals as a worship of god you are worshiping the lord through your work that's how you do it here a deeper secret is going to be revealed what will be done in the next few verses will be to show the secret of advaita vedanta and its application to work by an investigation into the uh, nature of work the how advaita vedanta uh, is manifested in work that will be shown in several verses ahead but today he indicates that he says 
Kartaramapi, although I am the doer of all work in this universe. I means as, uh, as the incarnation. As the incarnation, what do I do? He has already declared. I am here to re-establish religion. I am here to punish the wicked and, or uplift the wicked. I am here for the salvation of the good, the virtuous. So that's a lot of work. So God has a lot of, uh, incarnations have a lot of, you know, to do in their uh, list. So I have so much work. And if you think of me, my original form as God, I'm the incarnation of God. God has all the work in the universe, including the universe itself, to create the universe, to maintain the universe, and to finally dissolve the universe. Srishti Sthiti Pralaya, the creator, preserver, and dissolver of the universe. So that's a lot of work. And Kartaramafi, though I'm the doer of all of that, know me not to be a doer, not to be an agent. Vidhiya Kartaram. I do not, honestly I can say, I do not do anything. This is all, of course, in, it is pointing towards our real nature as existence, consciousness, bliss. Uh, so it's like on a movie screen, there might be an action, action movie full of action. But the screen can, if it could, it can claim honestly, no action. I did not do anything. I did not go on a car chase. I did not uh, swim, fight the villains uh, or shoot dinosaurs or whatever it is. Nothing. I did not do anything. Though you saw it all. All those details will be shown later. How do you, from an Advaitic perspective, how do you make work into no work? Action into non-binding, uh, no work. Akartaram. Abhyayam. I am unaffected. Abhyayam literally means unchanged. But I am unchanged by all the action that I do. Uh, Krishna, he is uh, um, he's driving the chariot of Arjuna in, this, uh, in the middle of a conflict. And of course, as an avatar, he does so many things. Yet, I am unaffected. The results of karma will not bind me. And day to day, I am serene in the midst of all these activities. See, what happens, we are not so much worried about what will happen in the future. What is the result of my karma? That's one worry. But right now, day to day, karma is troublesome. Um, it's exhausting to work day in and day out. The reactions which come from work, the frustrations which come, the unhappiness which comes, the dealing with difficult people in our lives, with so many people in the world, which work brings us in contact with at home, uh, at work. All this affects us. It, it disturbs us, makes us unhappy, unfulfilled. Abhyayam, I am not affected by it. He says, I am not affected by it. Um... So this is an indication of how work should be done from an Advaitic perspective and that we will see in the future. But now, the actual topic which, uh, of this evening. Chaturvanyam Maya Srishtam Gunakarma Vibhagasha. I have made the caste system of, of the four castes based on action and uh, occupation. Uh, on, on, uh, on nature and occupation, uh, occupation. On qualities and occupation. Alright. A quick... Introduction to the um, Varnashrama system of uh, ancient Indian society. Ash uh, Varna means caste and Ashrama means our position in life, a station in life. So, the whole system was designed to make a harmonious society and enable us to fulfill our goals. Two things, your personal fulfillment and a good society, a harmonious society. So, when you look at the ashrama, the four ashramas, uh, 
It's basically four ashramas and four castes. That's it. A, mat a matrix of four ashramas and four castes. Four ashramas, Brahmacharya, studentship, Grihastha or Garhastha, householder, Vanaprastha, the retired one, literally forest, forest goer, and Sannyasa, the monk, monastic life, the renunciant. Four, sta four stages of life. And four castes. The Brahmana, the Brahmin, the priestly class, or I mean, it's not a good translation, but anyway. Kshatriya, the warrior or administrative ruling classes, the caste of the Vaishya, the, the tradesman, the businessman and all, and Shudra, the, com the common laborer. So these are the four castes and the four stations. In every caste, there are these four stations of life, uh, which everybody goes through. First, a quick note on the four stations of life, the ashrama. So first one, one um, goes to the house of a teacher and learns about life, both worldly life and a secular education, but very importantly, a religious education, education in morals, ethics and spirituality. So a study of the Vedas. Um, there was a lot of a mass of um, things to be learned. So the child would learn all this and then and would be expected to lead a, a pure, austere and celibate life. So, um, no frats or what, sororities or things like that. So, you, you lead this kind of a disciplined life and you're ready to take on responsibilities of life. At that point, most people would go into householder life. A few would be given the option if they wanted to become a monk directly from Brahmacharya. So that was allowed. In Upanishads, it is said, one can become a sannyasi either from the Brahmacharya ashram from the studentship, that one must go through, some kind of education first. And then you become a monk, or from the Grihastha Ashram, um, or from the, um, the forest goer, the retired one. So from any of the three previous uh, states of life, one can become uh, a monk, a renunciant. Um, Brahmacharyatva, uh, Grihatva, um, Vanatva. So either from the studentship or from householder life, uh, or from uh, the forest dwelling, the retired life. What was the condition? When do you become a monk? Yadareva virajet, tadareva prabrajet. The day you get utter vairagya, dispassion for the world, intense desire to realize God, that day you are free to become a monk, wherever you are. That was the idea. Once, But most people would not. Most people would go into um, householder life. So there you get married and um, you start a family, you have an occupation and um, you have duties towards your family, towards um, society. So there are many roles and these roles are most dominant in Grihastha life. Roles means um, which you are expected to fulfill. If you are a father or a mother, you have to fulfill these roles. A husband or a wife, there are certain duties associated with those roles. Um, a, a child, a son or a daughter, certain duties associated with those roles. If you accept the role, if I accept if a householder or a monk, certain duties associated with those roles. If I accept this role, then I have to do it. It's no, there's no way I can say that, yes, I'm a parent, but I won't take care of my children. It, it, it goes together, accepting the role and the duties that go with it. So the Grihastashram, the householder life, is the basis of society because all the others depend on the Grihastashram. The, it is the householder who is productive, economically productive, who sustains all of society, defends it, for example, um, and uh, progress. Uh, 
So the students, they depend on, uh, on the householder for their sustenance. The schools and the ashrams, they defend, depend on the householder. The retired persons, they depend on the householders for their sustenance. And of course, the monks also depend. All the other three stations in life, they depend on the householder. The householder is very, very important. Then, um, when the children are grown up, uh, and then the uh, householder is free to withdraw from society and devote uh, oneself exclusively to a spiritual life, to a higher spiritual life. During the householder life also, there are these um, rituals, religious, uh, throughout the four stages of life, religious rituals are there, something to be done daily, some religious, begins with some kind of religious ritual and ends with that. But the predominant thing might be worldly success, worldly duties in the householder life. As one goes beyond that, one begins to withdraw and concentrate on an exclusively spiritual life in Vanaprastha. And then one day, one, when one is ready, one might go out entirely out of society as a monk or stay even in the house but become very monk-like, completely isolated from others and exclusively dedicated to uh, a spiritual goal. So that's the progress of life. And it's a very natural and beautiful progress. It, it, it uh, makes us spir uh, mature and ready for spirituality. At no point does the Hindu way of life forget that the whole purpose of life is God-realization. Ultimate purpose of life is God-realization. Four goals of life. Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha. Uh, but Moksha is Parama Purushartha. Moksha is the highest goal. Not for a few monks. For everybody. So even if you don't feel like large numbers of people are not interested in moksha, God-realization, fine. But the Hindu way of life would say, keep it in the background. Keep it as a possibility. Keep it as an option which we will take up later maybe. But that is always an option. Such a wise thing. Um, very, very wise thing. I was listening to a talk by Swami Ashokanandaji in the 1950s in, in California, in San Francisco, at the height of the Cold War. Uh, so he's saying that, Look, both of these economic systems of the West, communism and capitalism, you know what the problem is with, with uh, either of them, even if they're successful, after some time they offer nothing more to, to the individual. You have fulfilled your role as a capitalist or as a communist and uh, have built a good capitalist or communist society. And then, then what? And it is even more so today, you see, uh, this hyper-consumerist culture. It, um, you'll be happy if you buy the next uh, iPhone 12 now it has come. So uh, it is promised by this culture. Uh, you'll be happy if you have money, if you have body-centric culture, the perfect body, um, the, uh, you know, the perfect vacation, gadgets, all kinds of pleasures, you'll be happy. If you're not happy, little more, more, better, uh, better car, better um, uh, you know, gadget, Better vacation, better house. What else is there? Nothing else. That's it. Will it make you happy? It won't. So the stages of life understood this inner psychology, human psychology, that one must evolve from the immaturity of teenage years through um, the, the pressures and the responsibilities of a householder life. See, even in householder life, even at most the selfish, irresponsible teenager at least has to now expand and take care of um, family and especially children. You, it, it stretches you, even the most selfish person. 
And of course, in most cases, you expand much more beyond that into the community. Now this whole thing depends upon you, not just this one family, but the entire community depends on you, nation depends on you. And then you push further. Um, so, householder life, after artha and karma, after pleasure and um, you know children and success in life, those things you have got to some extent. It was understood that one person would, would want something higher in life. So dharma, a welfare of, of others, expansion, further expansion, or even better, a spiritual life. If you have that kind of progress, which all of us we here we have, that's why we are here, um, spiritual life has to be taken up. At some stage, one must come to the maturity. This world cannot give us lasting uh, happiness or fulfillment. One must look some, uh, to something transcendent. I have seen it actually in the lives of uh, people have come to me, you know, people of my age. We married and have children and have jobs and we now begin to realize that this is what my life is going to be now. At least I have to take care of the kids until they are in the early 20s or something or even beyond maybe. And uh, um, this is the job, I have to hold on to the job to provide for myself and for the kids. What else do I do in life? I mean, it's already, I am, I am locked into a particular path. And then, so is this my life? And very soon, 20 years later, I'll be old and I'll retire. And is that all of life? Then you, this, this what is promised by present society, um, you know, a better iPhone, a better vacation, a better car, a better uh, lifestyle. Uh, and people keep telling me that, Swami, you have no idea of how crass it is uh, out there. Uh, because you are always immersed in reading Upanishads or Gita or something, people have no exposure to these uh, higher things in life. And the only thing that they are constantly bombarded by society, by TV, somebody said made a very important uh, dis uh, you know, insight, that, that phrases keeping up with the Joneses, like keeping up with your neighbors. So the people you lived with, maybe the rich person in the neighborhood had something more than you, you aspired to that. It is a natural human instinct. It's still a very materialistic aspiration. But now, your neighbors are not, you know, some uh, young uh, boy in a documentary was saying, I know the names of the Kardashians and I don't know the names of my neighbors. So, your neighbors are not uh, your people who live around you. They are the models, the, the lifestyle that is being projected on TV. Those people are now your neighbors and that's what you are aiming towards. That's a, that's a crazy aspiration. And most of what is being shown there is also an illusion. It's an illusion. So it just brings unhappiness. One must move beyond artha and karma, pleasure and uh, you know, success in material terms, into dharma. If it is not even spirituality. Some people say, I'm not attracted to spirituality, but I would want to do things for others. Didn't Vivekananda say that he who loves human beings truly loves God. All right, move into that. When people ask me, we, we feel a kind of hopelessness in life. What do we do? Is that all that there is to life? Then I tell them, if they are not interested in spirituality, I'll tell them, move beyond your little circle. Me and mine, I and my little family, move beyond that. There are big causes where you can help so many people. Dharma, dharma is a wider thing. Helping other people helping society, ally, aligning yourself with something larger than the, this, this body. 
So that is dharma. And beyond that, of course, moksha. Anyway, my point here was this development from brahmacharya to grihastha to vanaprastha to sannyasa is a very natural and very necessary progression of maturity, um, of human maturity. One must go through this. And what, what if one does not? Unhappiness, lack of fulfillment. One won't know. Everything is going well, but I'm not happy. Why not? You don't have that higher thing which you need. If you are, if you are kept with a, I mean, a, what do you call it? A popsicle. Um, kids love it. Um, so popsicle, very nice. But if you kept with a popsicle when you are a teenager and you are an adult, and a, you will get sick of it. The same thing. One must um, become more and more mature. Now, this is the four stages of life. The four, the four um, castes, which is what Krishna is talking about here. So how do you understand these four castes, which are, you can see it in Indian society. One way of understanding, Krishna says, is guna, by nature. By nature it means, the whole psychology here is based on Sankhya, Sattva Rajas Tamas. Sattvic person, I'm not explaining Sattva Rajas Tamas now. Basically Sattva is, is, um, is um, serenity, inwardness, calmness, uh, intellectuality, refinement, this is Sattva. Rajas is dynamism, energy, ambition, passion. Tamas is inertia, slowness, uh, dullness. Now, one kind of nature is the Brahminical nature. The Brahminical nature is, uh, would be generally introverted, uh, intellectual, uh, given to, even given to pleasure, but a kind of refined pleasure. So that person might like good literature, classical music. Remember, it's not the Brahmin who is a Brahmin by birth. It's the nature of the person. It could be a person who is a Brahmin. It could be a person who belongs to a Shudra caste. It could be a person who has nothing to do with India or Indian society. You will find them in all societies, at all times in human history. Introverted, intellectual, thoughtful, sensitive, quiet, um, generally a very decent kind of person morally. So this is a sort of a, a disciplined, simple, the whole idea of a simple life and high thinking. So, um, this is a Brahminical mindset. It's a Brahminical psychology. Uh, personality. Let's call it a personality. So, that's a Brahmin. That's a Brahmin by quality. Uh, a Sattvic nature. All the other qualities are also there. But Sattva Guna predominates generally. Followed by Rajaguna and followed by Tamaguna. So, Sattva Guna mainly and Rajas and Tamas are there in small quantities. That's the general structure of the personality. Now, the other kind of personality is that um, um, may be very intelligent, but also very dynamic, energetic, a doer, a mover and shaker, wants to do things in the world. So predominant of rajas. Um, so a very active, doing kind of person, achieving kind of person. Uh, that person would be, what's the point of just sitting quietly and reading a book in a library? Go out there, do something. Why, why we just read history? Make history. So I remember... Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, he wrote this book, The Discovery of India. I think he wrote it as, uh, uh, you know, like lessons in Indian history for his daughter, Indira, who would later become the Prime Minister. And one of the touching things he writes, at that time Indira was a school kid, I think. Uh, one of the things he writes is that, I'm writing this for you. Remember, it's good to read history, but it's better to make history. 
and it's so touching to see that he's writing it to this young girl who later becomes the prime minister of india so she also made history afterwards anyway that's irrelevant so a doer and a shaker so rajoguna rajas predominates and there is sattva and tamas less sattva and even less tamas so the, that kind of mentality that kind of personality is called a kshatriya personality kshatriya these are good soldiers and administrators and you know and corporate leaders things like that leaders basically um then the third category is the where the vaishya personality where the rajaguna is there predominant just like the kshatriya but um uh, instead of the sattva the tamas part is more than the sattva so rajasik tamasik and sattvik so here for the differences for the kshatriya personality the doing and the achieving is important that's the point of it and like an alexander the great you would rather die than be as you know, head of a small greek principality you want to rule the world and all the trouble that you undertake is is nothing to you you just want to do that but the vaishya personality is dynamic active but the point is not to achieve something point is to gather and accumulate and be rich uh, especially in material terms more and more and more uh, not so much the achievement part of it a kshatriya for example would be happy to be ruined if we can win a war or be the leader or something but the vaishya would not be happy to be ruined i'd rather be rich rather than be successful uh, in other terms so the vaishya personality is the accumulative kind the kshatriya is the doing kind again it's nothing to do with the being a businessman in india or being a part of the business class it is found all over the world everywhere and finally the shudra personality is where tamas predominates and uh, sattva and rajas are less so that kind of person is uh, prone to action but it's of a mechanical kind or prone to becoming uh, indolent or lazy and the kind of action a tamasic person would be comfortable with would be something that is not too demanding uh, the the tensions and pressures of the wall street trying to accumulate money no i don't want that or the dangers of being a conqueror or a soldier or a, or a policeman no 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 absolutely not and the pressures of writing papers and assignments in a university no i don't want any of that i want a simple quite earn earn my little bit of money and uh, watch tv and that's it it's a, that's a shudra kind of personality a mechanical uh, unskilled laborer that kind of personality so these are the four kinds of personalities of the brahmin the kshatriya the vaishya and the shudra and they are to be found irrespective of society of civilization everywhere here in this society and also remember in every institution so it does not mean that uh, the kshatriyas are only in the police and the army and the brahmins are only in the university not at all every institution will have these these types also a university has professors they are the brahmins there uh, and uh, grad students but it also has administrators it also has campus security it also has the uh, campus uh, you know the 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 janitors and the cleaning staff and all of that uh, a corporate say a big corporation multinational corporation they have the ceo who might be um, more of a kshatriya a doer an achiever but they also have the it people and the systems people who are like more like brahmins uh, or the hr people who are like brahmins there are also of course the vaishya type and the shudra type so all types are found in 
society and in organizations, in ashrams. So there might be a Swami who is a spiritual teacher. That's a Brahmin. So what I'm doing is a Brahminical function. Uh, but there might be a Swami who is the head of a huge ashram, is more like a chief executive officer or like the Pope or something like that. Uh, that's more of a Kshatriya function. There might be a Swami who is very good at collecting money. And, uh, and, so, and there's a Swami maybe who is uh, just a very hard-working, simple soul, who are like the backbone of any ashram. So all these classes are there in society, regardless of where, which time you are in. doesn't have to be ancient India. The second way of looking at this caste system is what Krishna says, karma, occupation. Here karma means occupation. So this is simple. Anybody, doesn't matter which family comes from, which country comes from, anybody who is a teacher, who is a priest, who is uh, dedicated to knowledge functions is a Brahmin. Anybody who is um, engaged in military activities, police activities, administrative activities, no matter, see, now it may not be suited for it. Right? So may not be suited. Maybe I have seen people in India who are IAS officers, like the top, they're like federal bureaucrats. I remember one person who was very unhappy, was telling me, you know, I had this chance to be a professor in university and my parents pushed me into this IAS job, which is very glamorous for Indian parents in those days, not now anymore. So, but I always wished that I had studied physics and become a professor. So that person is by quality, inner personality is Brahminical. But by job, he's a Kshatriya. He's a police officer. He was a very a senior police officer in Bihar. So, now, so, this is actually what you are doing. Actually what you are doing. Doesn't, now, and we are not taking into account your personality. It's just what you are doing. That's your, your caste. It might change also, who knows, in, in, in a life. Though our personality does not easily change, but your job might change actually. Then the third way of... Um, of understanding caste is what is normally understood as caste in India, in Indian society. It is by birth, jati. So, which is not at all what Krishna is speaking about. Jati here means, literally jati means birth, but that's the word used in India for caste. They will ask, what's your caste? Um, and there are some states in which casteism is very prevalent, they will outright ask you, what's your caste? Now that jati caste system is what is the source of all the problem. It's almost like a prison cell, you know, you're, you're locked into a particular section of society just because you're born into a particular family and community. Um, Indians who are in this group, they know. You can more or less, not always, more or less find out what is the caste of a person just by looking at the, the surname, the title of a person. So Indians know. Oh, okay, he is or she is from the south of India and is probably a Brahmin or, or a Kshatriya or some and there are numerous castes and sub-castes. I mean the, or the four castes are divided into numerous sub-castes. It's, it's a sort of locked society. It froze the mobility in society for centuries and centuries. No intermarriage, no intermingling, little communities. Somebody put it very nicely. It's that it's like a mosaic floor. It seems to be very diverse but the mosaic floor is actually not diverse. The black and white and red tiles are there all um, neatly divided from each other. The black tile is only a black tile. The red tile is only a red tile. The blue tile is only a blue tile. And clearly demarcated from other tiles. So Indian society became fragmented like that over centuries. Then came the monster of privilege. So certain people by their position, you know, Brahmins or Kshatriyas, 
who had uh, privileged positions, they grabbed power. Um, and uh, and this, this started a cycle of exploitation of the masses. So it, there are many, many evil effects of this jati caste system. Uh, if you look at the caste system Krishna is talking about, by quality and by your occupation. But as human beings, you are all equal. And of course, in the ultimate Vedantic sense, you are one reality. You're all divinity. So this is the different the, the problem which people are furious about and, and people have seen it, especially social justice uh, activists in India. Um, they are mad at Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita and saying that, oh, he is saying that he's at the source of the caste system. But Krishna never said the family-based, the birth-based caste system. Doesn't matter what your personality is, what your, your, your tendency is. Doesn't matter what your community occupation is. See, the personal tendency and your community occupation, this was uh, the structure of, I would say, caste in every society, in every civilization down to today. Today especially, it is mostly, luckily, it is mostly our, our personality. What we are suited to do, in, especially a country, advanced countries like the you know, United States and other advanced countries, rich economies of the West, uh, you are always encouraged. Find out what you like to do, what you are good at doing, what would you want to do in life. And that's the dream of every person, to do what they want to do. Which means they will follow their personality, their inner tendencies, characteristics, guna, guna jati. And till recently, people mostly followed the occupations of their forefathers. So that was a karma jati, occupation. That's how guilds came up, communities of tradesmen. Um, but this monstrous thing, people are locked in, no matter what your... Uh, um, in, inner desires are, inner capabilities are, no matter what your occupation is, it's all determined by whom you are born to with your family. It's disastrous. And this weakened and disturbed, um, sort of perverted Indian society for centuries. Of course, it is all that jati caste by birth is now not recognized by the state. It's illegal to discriminate on caste by birth. And say this illegal to discriminate on caste by, by anything. Not at all. Every say for example, every education system discriminates on caste based on quality. What what are examinations? What are SAT scores? Uh, what are aptitude tests? They are all tests of caste by by quality, by your uh, uh, inner uh, tendencies. Anyway, I think we have all got the idea basically what this is all about. Um, I have been faced with activists, uh, Indian activists in. Um, I remember one conference in California where this lady stood up, she's a scholar from India, and said, the Gita should be banned, you know, it should be banned because it, it just promotes caste system. Not in that sense, it does not promote caste system. And the, in the sense in which Krishna is talking about caste, that's natural. I mean, it's just human nature or social structure. I mean, in the sense of occupation, economic occupational structure. That's there and that's almost guaranteed to be there in every kind of society, from the most primitive tribal societies to the most sophisticated postmodern societies we have got today. Okay, that's what I wanted to say. Jayant, notice it doesn't have much to do with the whole of, um, the, of Krishna's teaching or Vedanta. It's more to do with the current context, um, especially in India. Caste in India, by the way, those who do not know, those who are in the West, uh, it's, it's something like racism in the West. So anything which you might say in which sounds even faintly supporting caste 
is uh, politically and socially co very controversial in India. Okay. Namaste Swamiji. Namaste. Uh, I have a question about uh, the twelfth verse where uh, Sri Krishna teaches that uh, humans uh, do perform actions in this material world for success in uh, the, the material world. Yes. And uh, I, I want to acknowledge that I, I'm sure that, that the teaching is true and the question that I have is because of my own ignorance. Uh, so uh, the, the background is that I, I was brought up by, brought up in, in uh, a Brahmin family by very devout and religious parents. And uh, I, although later in life I noticed that when uh, a serious health issue struck our family, then the religious practices of my parents didn't really solve our problems even in the material world. So I, I feel fraught by this doubt that, uh, that, that that my own enlightenment depends on me, uh, or depends on the grace of, of the same Savana Brahman, that if by, by the grace of the same Brahman, uh, I may or may not get enlightenment. So my okay. question is for some... Yeah. I think I... So I my, uh, yes, complete the thought. So my, my question is that for, for someone whose bhakti sense is not very well developed at this point, uh, is it just a matter of continuing the practice and hoping that it will grow or is there a different way for me to offer my work uh, to God and, and practice Karma Yoga in, in the way uh, in, which, in which Krishna taught in the third chapter? All right. Um. First of all, one question I, you didn't maybe ask it. I thought that was that was where you were heading. It's an interesting insight which I, I had not thought about. See, what he indicated was, so you have devotion to God, and here God says your worldly problems will be solved when you ask for you know like you help ask for God's help to rescue us from illness, for example, health problems, and so God by God's grace it will be solved. But immediately one can object; it's not always solved. People do die even after praying a lot, uh, if, even if uh, you're praying for your dear and near ones or friends, they still die and there are dying. There are people dying all the time, even here in the most advanced um, societies of the world. Perhaps more, where more than here in New York, in April, May and all, thousands and thousands of people. So, and people pray for success, wealth and maybe... All students have had the feeling, the, the experience of praying for getting through examinations and getting good grades or passing examinations. Some do and some don't. So the point is, God who says, I will help you in your worldly endeavors, protect you in the worldly sense, does sometimes and, and does not do, do so sometimes. That's one. Now, do I depend on such a God for enlightenment? Then it may be that by the grace of that God I will get enlightenment or sometimes I will not get enlightenment. It seems a very risky affair there. No, it doesn't work that way. Remember, ultimately the whole purpose of this game of life is not success in this life, is not being rescued from illnesses. Uh, no, the whole purpose of it is enlightenment, God-realization, moksha. If being free of diseases was the purpose of all spirituality, then spirituality is a big failure. There are so many religious people who get diseases. In fact, a number of cases, and I'm not saying just one religion, but I've seen it in the case of uh, Christians, Jews, Muslims, um, or even very superstitious people of all religions. In the coronavirus time, 
being completely unconcerned with uh, the basic precautions, not socially distancing, not <laughs> sanitizing their hands, not wearing masks, God will protect me. God must be rolling his eyes. In, 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 so, no, that is not the purpose, ultimate purpose of religion. The purpose of religion is enlightenment and all the rest are, uh, are designed in such a way which will finally take you to enlightenment. So, depending on our good karma or bad karma, sometimes God, our prayers will be answered, sometimes not answered. Remember, in each case, it's only helpful for us in spiritual life. One thing that is guaranteed is, and Sri Krishna will say that in 6th chapter, those who walk on this path of enlightenment, God-realization, for them success is guaranteed. Maybe not in this life, but inevitably the one thing that you will take from life to life is this, um, your spiritual progress. That is never lost and it will ultimately lead to success. Okay. The other thing you said was, Bhakti, yes, in, for, in many cases it can be mechanical, but it's good to hold on to it. Meditation, devotion, service and uh, uh, jnana, knowledge. These are the four broad yogas which Swami Vivekananda talked about and Sanatana Dharma talks about these four yogas basically. And if you see the different philosophies like Advaita, Vishishta Advaita, Advaita, they will just, they will accept all of it, will just arrange, rearrange the hierarchy of the uh, different approaches. So in Advaita, Jnana is the highest, that is the only one that will take you to enlightenment. Bhakti and meditation and um, karma, they only support and so on. In Dvaita Vedanta, Bhakti is the highest, others are in a supporting role. Karma is, poor karma is always in a supporting role in everywhere, never the hero, always the, uh, the bit player. But very essential, very important. Otherwise there will be no enlightenment. So you can do karma. You have to do karma. We all have to do karma. Even if it is mechanical. I am doing this as the worship of the Lord. Or there is another way. Which Krishna will talk about in this chapter. From a, from a jnani's way. Of looking at karma. He will talk about it. Brahma, Pranam, Brahma. He will talk about it later on. Yes. Yeah, Swamiji Bhagwan is saying Kartaram Api, Maam Vidya Kartaram. Yes. So he's saying like he's a doer and a non-doer at the same time. Yes. So, Not at the same time. Though I am the doer, actually if you know me in truth, what I, I am really, you will see I am a non-doer. And the what Advaita is saying, that's true of you also. We naturally feel I am the doer of all these actions. But when when we get this insight into who I am as the witness consciousness, I see I'm not doing anything. The, when the screen has forgotten itself and arranged and identified itself with the, uh, with the cop in the car chase, Hollywood car chase and in a movie, saying, I am the doer of this action. I am a cop chasing a villain in a car. When it realizes, no, I am the screen and on me uh, a Hollywood cop movie is playing. So I am not chasing anybody anywhere. He realizes that. Although the same experience is still going on. When you wake up from a dream, you realize, I did not meet those people. I did not say those things. I did not go there. I, was, um, I did not have those good or unpleasant experiences. None of it. Though I experienced all of it. Why? It was a dream in one awareness. The dreamer's awareness. Similarly, in me the awareness, all this is going on. This is what it is. So I am, Krishna says, I am a karta. I am not the doer. Because I know my real nature is Brahman, Satchidananda. You are also like that. That we become clearer. He will say that very extraordinary verse. 
the one who sees action in inaction and inaction in action that one truly sees and that one is the true yogi and that one is truly the doer of all actions it will come very soon then brahmaharpanam brahmahavi all action is brahman all that will come how do you see brahman the ultimate reality in action in in the midst of activity Hello. I have a particular problem. Um, I've been trying to focus for the last year entirely on my uh, spiritual path or on my spiritual life. And uh, I've been trying to let go of attachments. I've been successful. I've been disconnecting from the world. I deleted my Apple News. I'm disengaging more from uh, friends. Uh, but the biggest struggle that I have is... Um, since I started studying with you, I noticed that even my out-of-body travels and uh, other uh, spiritual gifts that I have is just another form of attachments and experiences, so it's, it's, none of it is real. So I've been trying to let go of these, but I've, I found that I stopped out-of-body travel and I'm trying not to focus on my um, spiritual gift anymore and trying to let it go. But by letting go, I feel I have a void that now I'm trying to fill through more worldly desires again. So I feel like I'm going around in circles. I'm trying to let go. But by letting go of these things, it has created a void that I'm trying to fill in another way. So how do I deal with this? Fill all voids with the four yogas. Fill it with devotion to God. And read devotional texts. Read the lives of saints. Read the life of Sri Ramakrishna, the life of Vivekananda. Holy Mother, uh, lives of saints of all religions, that will create devotion spontaneously. You will have the, the feeling of devotion. Meditate morning and evening. Um, doing. Yes, you are doing it. And st stay with this idea. I am the Atman. I am the witness of out-of-body travel, of the worldly desires coming up in the mind. We are all at the, at the level of the mind. So, uh, when you do this, you will not be affected. It will be all right. I've been reading and studying and reading books. I've, I have piles of books on my nightstand, but there's only so much I can read and listen to your podcast. Mm. Uh, you don't have to overexert yourself. In fact, Upanishads say, Bahun Shastram Nanuadhyay. That means do not read too many scriptures. It says, Anya Vacho Vimunchatha. Give up all. Um, irrelevant texts or irrelevant discussions. So, uh, simplicity is better than complexity. Yes, uh, but if it's all about spiritual life, because you are interested in philosophy and spiritual life, that's good. And at one point, it, it becomes less and less. I like this story I read in the uh, anecdote, I read in the Reader's Digest, of this gentleman um, who was a professor probably. He said that at one time I wanted to reduce my big library into uh, you know, short, like a, just the essence. So I had this, all the classics of um, Western literature, Western civilization. That was, he was probably an Englishman. That's what, that was my library. Then I decided to reduce it even to just the basics, uh, core um, uh, spiritual books and important works of philosophy. That's it. And he says, now in my old age, and I, all I need is my rocking chair and my Bible. That's it. It all comes down to that. Uh, then Sri Ramakrishna, he talks about this monk who would come, a visiting, wandering monk, who would sit and as long as there was daylight, he had this little book. He would read the book very intently. 
You could be absorbed in it. So when Sri Ramakrishna was curious, what's there? And he saw on every page of the book was written Ram. That's all. That's the, just the name of God. And that's really what he was reading, page after page after page. So that's how we become more and more and more focused, but focused on the highest. I remember... Yeah, but I feel like since I've been trying to do that, uh, it created... Since I've been trying to focus more on the highest by letting go out of my out-of-body experiences and out-of-body travel, which I enjoyed, and uh, another spiritual gift that I have. So I'm trying to let go, but it, it, I had to fill it with something else, and the books are not enough. Don't worry about it. It'll, don't worry about it. It'll be all right. Don't uh, relax. Take your time with it. It'll be all right. Don't worry. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Pranav has said that uh, uh, in Sapiens, Yuval Hariri makes the um, compelling case that capitalism and communism also forms of religion, lower religion. Yes, in a sense, they do seem like religion, isn't it? People are like maybe more crazy about communism and capitalism than they are like they were about religion in past ages. Um, but technically, the only problem is why why can't you consider science to be a form of religion? Why can't you consider uh, capitalism or communism to be a form of religion? No, actually, you cannot for a technical reason. Uh, one common aspect of all religions is transcendentalism, that there is something that transcends this material universe. So even Buddhism, which does not believe in a god or even an immortal soul, is still transcendental because uh, nirvana, Enlightenment, the freedom, is a transcendental freedom which transcends this material universe. So all religions, theistic religions, non-theistic religions, the most spiritual, most philosophical, the most ritualistic and the most devotional, all of them have one common feature, transcendental, beyond this universe. But science and capitalism and communism are very much this world. So that's why you cannot consider them to be religions. But yeah, but the point is taken. Very good. Let, let us end it here. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Rapanamastu I pray to the Divine Mother. This is the time of the worship of, of Mother Durga. To those who are interested, you can see a very wonderful form of worship is done, uh, very genuine, in Belurmat. So if you go to the Belurmati YouTube, the channel, you can see the daily worship which is done, especially the evening Arati. That's very uplifting. And this time it's, uh, it's also unique because, because of the coronavirus restrictions, the public is not allowed in. Generally, it is very, very crowded. Uh, tens of thousands of people all the time. This time it's only the monks. So you can see that. But luckily they have put, they put it on, uh, you know, like uh, you can see the video and, uh, and the live uh, telecast of that on the YouTube channel. It, it's very interesting. I pray to the Divine Mother for her protection, her blessings, for this world and for enlightenment, both.